This is the weekend of Valentine's Day. As I mentioned two weeks ago, February is kind of the month of love, I guess. Uh, we celebrate Valentine's Day. We're reminded uh, to be thankful for the people that love us and to show our love to people that we do love. There was an article I found a little while back uh, talking about the most famous love songs ever uh, and just kind of went through the different types of love songs. And uh, Paul McCartney says that the greatest love song of all is the Beach Boys' God Only Knows. It's a good love song. Uh, there are different types of love songs. Some of them can be playful, uh, like The Cure's Friday, I'm in Love. Maybe you've heard that. Glorious, like Stevie Wonder's You and I. They can be unique, like Otis Redding's rendition of The Temptations Hit My Girl. Uh, they can have, there are songs about falling in love, the first time I saw your face. There are songs about love turned cold. Uh, you've lost that loving feeling like by the Righteous Brothers, right? Uh, there are songs about regret, yesterday by the Beatles. Uh, there are even, there are songs about heartbreak, infidelity, of course. There are even love songs about love songs, right? You, there's no shortage. The article made the statement that somehow pop music seems to the, be the perfect vehicle for communicating the glory of love. Now, music is a great way to communicate love, and some of those songs are, are really good. So that may be true in some respects, but the question we want to ask this morning, we're talking about God's love and our response to that love. So the question I want to ask this morning is, how do we best communicate our love to God? How do we show Him that we love Him? Two weeks ago, we looked at God's love for us, uh, His amazing, unending, perfect, sac sacrificial, uh, committed, steadfast love. So what is our response to that? In this series, for this week and next week, we'll finish our series on matters of the heart. Uh, looking at God's love for us and our response to that love, how that love should impact our lives. That's the theme of our series. And today, we're going to look specifically, again, at our response to that. And we're going to use Matthew chapter 22, verses 30, uh, 34 through 40. We'll look at those verses uh, to show what our response to God's love should be. Uh, these verses, of course, are the two greatest commandments. If you'll remember in our series on the Ten Commandments, we talked about uh, this. God, Jesus summing up the law and the prophets, the two greatest commandments. And they show us what our response to, to God's love should be, how our lives should be impacted by, those, by His love. Now, these are commandments. Yes, Jesus is giving commandments. The Ten Commandments are commandments, but we shouldn't just view them as commandments, as rules to follow. We should view them as opportunities that we have specifically today to show our love to God. Uh, we're looking at this opportunity that we have. The Creator of the world invites us into an intimate relationship with Him. He gives us the opportunity to experience Him, to live for Him, to have life, a life of meaning and purpose, hope for eternity. He gives us these opportunities, and in all of that, we have the glory, the opportunity of experiencing His love on an intimate level. And so the question has to be, how should we respond? What should our lives look like 
once we've experienced the love of God and as we experience his love every day. So we're going to look at some factors that will show us that are involved in taking God's love, applying it to our lives, and what that looks like in response. We're going to begin with, we're going to walk through our passage together. We'll look at it verse by verse, but we're going to begin with the first factor about this, and that is uh, the, the command to love God. The first thing that we learn in response to God's love is that the command to love God is supreme. It is the supreme commandment. Jesus, again, in this passage, he's being questioned by the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to prove that he, he doesn't know what he should know or, or trying, to, trying to get evidence on him to prove that he's a false teacher or whatever they can drum up. And so they ask him this question. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, uh, they ask him this question, beginning in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The, the command to love God is the supreme command, the greatest commandment. The Pharisees and Sadducees, their focus was off. Again, they're trying to, to, to trip Jesus up, but they're asking a question that they had debated. They had taken the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the Levitical law, and they had added so many rules and regulations to it that it was impossible for anyone to come close to obeying all of it. A fraction of it, much, much more, all of it. There were 248 affirmative commands, things you should do. There were 365, the number of days in a year, there were things that negative commands, things you shouldn't do. They had so many rules, so many regulations, no one could possibly keep them. So this is what they did. They sat around debating which of the commandments were the greatest. Because they figured if we can just focus on the most important ones, then we don't have to worry about the lesser ones. If we know which ones are greater, then we'll just focus on those. That way we'll be good enough. The problem is they were forgetting a very important principle. And that's that if you break one of the commandments, you're guilty of all of the commandments. We see this in James 2.10. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. They, they just figured, hey, if, if I'm good enough... I'll be accepted. If I just focus on the most important ones, that'll be enough. But Jesus, as he always does, provides for them the perfect answer. And in his answer, sums up the entire law and prophets, the Ten Commandments. Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. And he shows in doing this where their priorities should be. The Pharisees and Sadducees were focused on rules and regulations. And their, their rules that they had added placed a burden on the people. They were not concerned with the people. They were not concerned with the burdens they were placing on people. Their priorities were out of whack. And Jesus is showing them that they need to change their priorities. Because he sums all of this up. The law is summed up 
with one very important principle. One word, actually, and that's love. All of the law is summed up in love. In Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul says this. He says, do not owe any, anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves, one, who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's all summed up in love. The commandments, do not murder, or do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment, all are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. The, the, the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they were focused on the law and not the lawmaker. Number one, they needed to love God. And if they loved God, then the other commandment would fall into place to love their neighbor. The law is summed up in love. It's not about being good enough. The law was never intended to show you uh, what you needed to do to be saved. It, it was intended to show you the standard that none of us could ever meet and our need to be saved by a Savior, by Jesus Christ, to show us where we fall short. Yes, it is the standard, and I guess if you could meet that standard, you would be all right, but nobody can. That's the point. None of us are perfect. And so what they needed to focus on was not the rules. What they needed to focus on was the one who made the rules, God himself. But they, they had lost sight of that. Unfortunately, a lot of people in our culture have lost sight of that. A lot of people in the church have lost sight of that. Barna Research Group conducted a survey a while back that showed 53% of people believe that if a person is good enough, or does enough good things for other people that they will earn their way into heaven. That if I'm just good enough, if you were to just walk the streets and take a poll, what do you think it takes for a person to get into heaven? If you ask that question, overwhelmingly, the answer you would receive would be something like this. Well, I believe if a person does enough good things or is good enough to other people, that, that they'll get in. That, they'll, that if I'm good enough, I'll go to heaven. What's shocking is in this survey, they found that one-third of all people who claim to be born-again Christians accept that notion as well. Notice I said claim to be born-again Christians, because if you believe that all you have to do is be good enough, then you'll never be good enough. None of us will ever be good enough. Uh, there's a survey conducted, on a more recent study, on a college campus that, just, that surveyed different college students. And ask that question, what, what will it take for a person to get to heaven? And this was, the, the results of the survey were 53 of 65 students who responded, 53 of 65 uh, acknowledged that they believed in heaven. Yes, I do believe in heaven. And they, they felt confident that they would go there based on what they had done, the good things they had done in life. 37 of those 53 based it on specific works that they had performed. I mean, they, yes, there's a heaven, I'll go there, and I'll get in by, based on what I had done, specific things. And there were answers. Only seven out of the 65 who were asked believed in heaven but were uncertain of whether or not they would go there. So overwhelmingly, people said, yeah, I'm going to get in. But their, their answer was, I'll get in based on what I did. And here were some of their specific answers to the question, do you believe you will go to heaven? Why or why not? Here's what they said. The most common answers. Yes, I'm a loving and caring person, and I believe I'll go to heaven because I'm a loving and caring person. Another answer. 
Will you go to heaven? Yes, everybody goes to heaven. Another answer, yes, I'll get to heaven. I haven't done anything really bad. Well, how do you judge really bad? You know, I'm sure there would be answers for that. But uh, one person said, uh, first you go to purgatory, then I will eventually go to heaven, but you have to go to purgatory first to work off your sins, and then you get to heaven. Another answer, I don't know if I've lived my life to deserve it. Well, no, you haven't. None of us have, but that, that's one of the answers, and there are a lot of people who are living with that, with that fear. Will you go to heaven? person answered, yes, because I try to do what feels right, what feels right. Will you go to heaven? I hope so. I try to do good things. Another answer to the question, will you go to heaven? I believe those who try to do what they believe is right will go to heaven. Based on that, yes, I think I'll go to heaven. Final answer that I have here, will you go to heaven? Yes, I'm a good person and I believe in God. Did you notice a pattern here? These people believe in God, they believe in heaven. But they believe that, that, that getting into heaven is based on what they do in life, good or bad, that earns their way in. In other words, when they get to the end of their life, God will look at their life and say, you did this, this much that was good, you did this much that was bad, the good outweighs the bad, I get in. That's what they believe. And that is the most common answer that you would receive from people today if I'm good enough. But what they need to know and what you and I need to know, the truth is, you and I will never be good enough. We will never be good enough to earn our way into heaven. Salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. Because as we read, if you are guilty of one breaking one point in the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. If I've sinned at all, then I'm guilty. And I need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed of sin. And so there is no way to be good enough. Loving God should be the top priority. Not following the law. Yes, that will come as a result of being saved. You show your love for God by obeying his commands. But first, I need to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. And that begins with accepting salvation. The only way I can love God is to be cleansed from sin, to be free from sin, so that I can have a relationship with him. And that's only possible by the saving blood of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection. And once I'm free from sin, I'm now free to love God. And when I love God, the other laws, the other commandments, the rules begin to fall into place. Because I begin to live by his power and his strength. So loving God should be the top priority of my life. Not being good enough. If we love God, if we're saved by grace, if, if we're saved by grace through faith, then we will show it in our works. Not the other way around. You'll never be good enough to earn salvation. If you love God, he'll make you good enough. All right, he'll cleanse you. Another way to look at this, the command to love God is supreme. The command to love God is also serious. I mean, in light of all of that, it's pretty serious that we get this right. And, and there's a reason Jesus said this is the greatest commandment. It's serious. I mean, it, it is, we, it's a shift in priorities. It was a shift in priorities for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in our human nature, it's a shift in priorities for us. We have to, first of all, if I'm going to love God truly, then, then it's about Him, it's not about me. 
It's not suddenly about me and what I can do, whether or not I can be good enough. It's about me giving my life to him. It's about self-sacrifice, which does not come naturally to us as human beings. Self-sacrifice. We need to pray like Jesus taught in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come. God, not my will, but your will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus in the garden modeled this. Before he went to the cross, he, he, he bows, he falls to his knees. In Matthew 26, he goes and he falls face down and he prays, facing uh, the sacrifice, facing crucifixion, facing the wrath of God being poured on him, suffering the punishment that we all deserve. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But, but, but look what he says next. Total submission. Not as I will, but as you will. And so if we're going to be devoted to God, there has to be a shift that takes place. Transformation by salvation, the power of Jesus, but then a shift in my priorities. Not my will, not my way, not what I can or can't do. Lord, your will. Total submission to God's will, to God and his will, self-sacrifice, submission. And then we commit our lives totally to God, completely to God. Look at verse 37 of Matthew 22 of our passage. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now we shouldn't think of heart, soul, and mind as different parts. We should think of heart, soul, and mind as different ways of thinking about the whole man in relation to God. Everything that I am, everything that I have, what this is saying is that I should love God with everything that I am and in every way possible. All of me is now His. Complete and total devotion to God. Loving God with everything that we are. In every way possible, the key is self-sacrifice, total commitment, and then placing God in the center of our lives. Now, you've, you've probably seen this before. This is not a new illustration, but I, I, I think it's important to visualize this because I think with good intentions, sometimes we get this wrong. If you were to ask folks, you know, just randomly, how, how would you prioritize your life? People would probably have a list something similar to this. They would probably say God first, family second, and then maybe after that, work, if you have a job, work. So God first, family second, work, then my social life, and then hobbies, whatever. And that's not a bad way to prioritize, right? I mean, that's, I, mean, I think that's, I think we could probably agree that that's, that's okay. I mean, you want God first, and you know, if he, and, and there, in, in a sense, there is that he has to be the top priority. I mean, love God first and foremost. Put him first and everything else will fall into place. But I think a better way to think about this is to prioritize our life this way. Maybe put God in the center. And, and if I put God in the center, if I do love him first, if he is the most important, if I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and, and then I prioritize my life around that commitment. Total submission. My family, my work, my social life, my hobbies. 
If everything I do is centered around God being first and foremost and at the center of my life, if it, if it comes as a result, everything else that I do comes as a result of my commitment to Him, then my priorities will be correct. God will be in the center of my life. I, I think that's the best way to think of it. And remember Jesus he, he, he promised us, God's in the center of our lives. He promised us the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28, 20. He said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, there are two ways to think about this, two ways to apply this. First and foremost, God is with us, so he's given us this mission to go and to spread the gospel and to make disciples. So he's with us to empower us and strengthen us to do what he's asked us to do. But there's another side of this. I'm with you always. The Holy Spirit is with us every day, everywhere we go, and that should impact how we live our lives. Whether we prioritize our lives with God in the center or not, He is in the center of your life if you're a believer. He is with you, and that should have great impact on how I live my life from day to day, the decisions that I make, the actions that I take, the things that I do, the things that I say. Um, it should impact everything. And listen, I know it's old and it became a cliche, but you know, what would Jesus do is, is really the question we have to ask every day because he's with me. And when I'm doing something, I'm doing it as a representative of Christ. And I'm doing it with him. He's with me. And so that should have great impact. God at the center of my life. Once we get this straight, loving God with everything that I am, everything that I have in every way possible, then we need to realize that the command to love our neighbor is a supplementary command. I mean, it's just beneath, but not much. <laughs> the two go together. You can't have one without the other. Because if I love God, I will love my neighbor, plain and simple. Look now at verse 39 of our passage today, Matthew 22. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, this comes from Leviticus 19:18. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where does this come from? Well, the nature of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about this. God, he is love. It's his nature. It's who he is. So it's in his nature to be loving. And that's his heart. I mean, that's his heart's desire is to express his love to others. It's his nature to show love. So if we are going to be like God, then our heart's desire should be to love others, to, be to, sh to show love to other individuals. Our hearts need to be in tune with God, in sync with the Holy Spirit. Psalm 37.4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you your heart's desires. And that doesn't, again, doesn't mean if I, if I delight in God, I'll get whatever I want. No. If I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, if he is at the center of my life, if I've submitted completely to him, if I've committed completely to him, then he will shape the desires of my heart. He will give me the same desires as his. And I will begin to delight in what he delights in. I will begin to have the desires that he has because he's shaping me from the inside out. He's, shaping, he's reshaping me. And so my desires will be in sync with his. And one of the most important aspects of that is that I begin to love people the way that he does. I begin to see people the way that he does. And 
I realize that love for God means I also love others because that is his nature. That is who he is. And if I want to be like him, then I'm going to love others. It is impossible to love God without loving people. Billy Graham said this. He said, unless our belief in God causes us to help our fellow man, our faith stands condemned. If, if our love for God, if, if one of the fruits of that is not loving others, then we are condemned. Our faith, he's saying, is not authentic because these two commandments go together. That's what Jesus is saying. They complement each other. They go hand in hand. And the measure by which we love God is whether or not we have committed to him, if we love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, the measure by which we love others is whether or not we love them the way we love ourselves. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you have loved yourself. This past week, as you know, we were out of town on vacation, and we had, had a, great, a great trip. It was a very, a very full trip, a lot of traveling, a lot of, a lot of history, which is like the ideal trip for me. And we started uh, in Washington, D.C. We moved to New York, and then we ended in Gettysburg. We spent all day Friday in Gettysburg. And uh, we'd been there once before, but I'd never gotten an opportunity to go through the museum and it was the coldest day of the week. It was freezing cold outside, but, but after we toured the museum, we hit a couple of spots on the battlefield. And, and one of the places that we saw was that we stopped at and actually got out and braved the cold in was, was where some of the fighting took place on the first day of, of the battle. And this, was, was this particular place was Chambersburg Pike. And, and again, some of the initial fighting took place there. And, and I got out, and, and I, I stayed outside a little longer than Mandy and the kids. They took shelter in the heat of the car, and I was standing there freezing because I love to read plaques, and I love to read stories. And, and, uh, and, I, and I was willing to, to sacrifice my comfort because I saw this, this one sign, and, and it caught my attention because I'd read something about it in the museum. It was, it was, the whole monument there was commemorating the 75th anniversary in 1938, um, President Roosevelt, they went to Gettysburg and there was the 75th anniversary. And actually about 1,800 veterans were still alive. They said the average age of the veterans present that day were 94. I mean, these guys lived a long time. But that, that interesting as it was, there was a picture that caught my attention. You could still see many of them original. You can still see some of the, the, the barriers, the rock barriers that they built, that the North built as the, the line of defense where the front lines were. And there was a picture of two guys in their 90s, I'm sure, one of, both of them standing with canes, one from the North in his uniform, one from the South in his uniform, reaching across the rock barrier, shaking hands. And, and there was a quote don't know which one said it, but the quote, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I should have taken a picture and I didn't, but the quote went something like this. We can no longer hold anything against one another because now we are a part of the same company. Two men divided by hatred and who, whose hatred, two different sides of the country, drove our country to kill one another. Violence. Death, destruction, they learned through that that love was greater than hatred. That love was more powerful than anything that could separate us. We need to understand 
that if we truly love God, that love for others will, will, will supersede any, anything else in our lives that might separate us. Love for others has to supersede differences, difference of opinion, even if I've been hurt by you or somebody else, my love for you should drive me to reconcile with you, regardless of the differences that take place. If two men who shot at each other across a concrete wall can reconcile and proclaim that they are now one, then whatever our differences, then we should be able to settle those. And we should, our love for God should drive us to love one another. Because again, these two commandments cannot be separated. You know, the husband and wife relationship, I won't read it all, but in Ephesians chapter 5, is described this way. Um, you know, the, 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 the husband should love his wife enough to lay down his life for her, just in the same way that Christ loved the church. Well, it, we are also commanded as brothers and sisters in Christ to be willing to lay down our lives. I mean, Jesus gives us the example, John 13, 15. I have set you an example that you will do just what I've done for you. Well, what specifically, Jesus? He doesn't specify. We should be willing to do for others what he did for us. And what did he do for us? He gave his life. The greatest act of love that any man could show another. Our love for others should be that great. We experience God's love. We share God's love. And that's how it should work. I mean, we, God's love never fully takes root in our lives until we've shared it with others. And I want to try to illustrate that for you this morning. It's Andy's turn in the rotation. They keep track. So <laughs> I'll, give some, I'll give some other volunteers a chance one of these days. But, uh, um, but this is her turn. So Andy's going to do something for me. I've got a balloon inside this, this bottle. And Andy, I want you to try as hard as you can. Don't pass out. But I want you to try as hard as you can to blow up that balloon inside the bottle, Okay. Try a little harder. It's not working, is it? All right, well, let me help you out here. Hold the bottle for me. She can't blow it up because air is going in, but no air is coming out. So let's try this. All right, now. Try it. A little hard. A little hard. There you go. All right. See, now she can blow it up. Here's the key. All right, you can stop. Before... <laughs> you okay? <laughs> not dizzy, are you? All right. All right, good deal. All right, thank you, sweetheart. Have a seat. Thank you. <laughs> She's going to keep going. It was working. All right, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. Here's the point. Without the air going through, even though you're blowing into a balloon, there still has to be a release of air. In order for the balloon to fill, there has to be air going out. Well, think of this balloon as God's love for us. The only way that God's love really takes root in our lives, according to Scripture, if I love God, I will what? I will love others. I can be saved. I can have experienced God's love through salvation, but until I begin to put that love into practice, I never fully experience the depths of God's love. I never fully am transformed into the image of God because if I'm going to be like God, I'm going to take on the character of God, and that means I'm going to love others in the same way that he loved me. So the command to love God supreme, it is serious, but the command to love others is supplementary. It is second, but it is related to the first. The two go hand in hand. And, and you know, if you've experienced God's love, you want to share it. That's the way that it is, and, and we want to do that. We want to tell people about God's love, and certainly we should do that. But don't forget that actions speak louder than words. 
You can tell people about God, and we should do that. We should share our faith. But we're talking about, we're emphasizing this year relational evangelism. The reason is because I'm going to make a greater impact in somebody's life if I show them my love for them in the name of Jesus while telling them about God's love. Because if I've really experienced God's love, then it will be shown in my actions, both my words and my deeds. And other people around me will know that my faith is real because of the way that I live my life. So all of this, and all of this, we realize an important principle that the command to love in its entirety, love God, love neighbor, is greatly significant. Without it, we, we can't even be identified as, as children of God. I mean, you'll, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another, Jesus said. Our love for each other shows that we belong to God. So this command to love God and neighbor is, is greatly significant. Go back to verse 38 again. The, this is the greatest and most important command. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The second is like it, he says. In verse 40, All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. That word depend, I want you to underline that. That's important. All the law and prophets, whatever your version of that is, depend, hang, whatever it is, on these two commands. That is a, a technical term. Depend is a technical term for laws that are derived from other laws. So all of the laws, and we talked about this. Remember the Ten Commandments series. The Ten Commandments, the first four deal with what? My relationship to God, my love for Him. The last six deal with what? My relationship to others, my love for others. So if I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, then I'm going to love others, love my neighbor as myself, and all of those commandments which are are derived from these two will fall into place. If I'm totally committed to God, totally 100%, submitted to him, loving him with everything that I am in every way possible, I'm loving my neighbor as myself, then I'm going to be obeying the other laws, all of those things. All of the commandments are drawn from this principle, and all of the commandments are applied within the context of this principle. They, they are still commandments of God, but they find their coherence. They are complete. They are, they are full They find their fullness in the overriding principle of loving God and loving our neighbor. And here's how this works, okay? If we adopt the heart of God, then we're going to love other people. I love God. I'm committed to him. I now have his heart. His desires are my desires. So if we adopt the heart of God, we will love other people. We love God, and then as a result, our love for neighbor, for God and neighbor, will result in obedience to other areas of our lives. So the other commandments, you know, it it said, do not, you do not murder, you do not steal. Why don't I do those things? Because I love you and I don't want to hurt you. Okay, and I love God and I don't want to disobey him. He's first, he's center in my life. And and because of that, I'm, I'm taking on the character of God, the heart of God. And so now I'm showing that in my love for others. One follows the other, and both of them go hand in hand. All of the commandments are fulfilled in this principle, loving God and loving neighbor. 
And we need to remember that, that none of us, the Pharisees, back where this started, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were spending all their time debating which one's the greatest, which one's the greatest. We've created a mess here. We can't obey all of them. Well, that's right. You can't even obey the Ten Commandments. So which ones are the greatest? Let's focus on the most important ones. Maybe we can get those right. And then when we get to the end of our lives, maybe God will accept us. Maybe we'll be good enough. They were focused on the wrong things. So we need to remember None of us can fulfill the law on our own. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The law finds its fullness in him. Even he himself in Matthew 5.17 said, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy. I came to fulfill it. All the law and the prophets, they pointed you to the fact that none of us are good enough. We can't fulfill the law. You find your fullness in Christ. Where I am weak, he is strong. Where I have fallen short, he has wiped away my sin. He has cleansed me of sin. Dr. Philip Williams said, The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, not the broom that sweeps it clean. Jesus cleans us up. You'll never be good enough. Don't, don't, well, I got to get my life straight before I go to Christ. No. No, you come to him, you submit to him, and he cleans you up. You submit to him, you give your life to him, you can't hold anything back, it's all his. You give it to him, and he cleans you up. Jesus came to fulfill the law. I've shared stories with you about us, uh, Hurricane Katrina, and how that impacted our lives, and the church I was pastoring at the time, there were several families uh, that were impacted. And one family in particular, uh, a lady and her husband was, was sick. He was dying of cancer and um, she'd been taking care of him. And of course, the storm, like it did ours, flooded her house and she had to take out sheetrock. In some rooms, um, it was four feet up, the, the water level, depending on where it was. And in other rooms, it was all of the sheetrock. And in her house where she lived, it was low. And she had to take out all the sheetrock in her house. Uh, and replace it. And she had bought the house, I don't know, 10 or 15 years before that. They'd lived there for a while. And what they realized when they pulled out all of the sheetrock in the kitchen in the dining room was that the studs behind the sheetrock were black with soot. There had been a fire in the kitchen in the dining room that the previous sellers just neglected to tell them about. They had no idea. So all of that had to be replaced. They'd covered it up, right? They had no idea it was there. They lived there for 10 or 15 years, didn't know it was there, but it was still there. You and I, listen, we can never be good enough. If I've broken one of the laws, I've broken all of them. There are dark spots in my life. I can cover it up. I can dress it up. I can pretend that I've got it all together. I can be a good person, whatever that is, you know, whatever your standard of good is. I can do good things. I can help people. I can make it appear like I've got it all together. It can look good on the outside. But if I haven't been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, then there are still dark spots, no matter how hard I try to dress it up. But here's the beauty. Once Jesus comes in, he doesn't just cover up the dark spots. He wipes them completely clean. His blood cleanses us from all of our sin. The wages of sin is death, but praise God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've all sinned, but Jesus 
provides a way for us to become white as snow. No more dark spots. No more burned places. You know, we still fall short. We, we're not perfect, but all of that's been covered by Jesus. So if you're here today and you're struggling with this concept, am I good enough? Am I not? You know, is my life making an impact? Do I have any meaning? What is the purpose? What is the meaning of it all? Will I be good enough when I get there? If you're struggling with any of that, begin with the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The only way that's possible is through salvation, through Jesus Christ alone. You have to be cleansed of your sins, but he offers a way to do that. Once you're cleansed from sin, then you can love God. You commit your life to him. You devote to him completely. He's now the center of my life. My heart is being transformed. He's giving me the desires of my heart. I want the same things that he wants, and that is shown in the way that I live my life, first and foremost, most importantly, in how I treat other people. Love God, salvation through Christ alone, and then love others. Commit my life to serving God and to serving and making an impact for him by the way that I serve others. So where do you fall today? Yeah, I think we all could probably improve a little bit in the area of showing love to others, right? There's always room for improvement, but are you able to love others? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if not, that's where you need to start today, right now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for salvation making that available through your son, Jesus Christ, and through him alone. It is only by your grace that we are saved. Not by works so that none of us can boast. It is only through, through grace, because of your love, because of your mercy. And I pray that if there's anybody in this place today, that, that we would all understand that none of us will ever be good enough. We can do good things, but none of us can be good enough because if we've sinned, we've fallen short, and you cannot allow sin into your presence. But because, Jesus, what you did on the cross, your death, taking on our sin, paying the penalty for our sin, your death and your resurrection, defeating death, the wages of sin is death, but you've given us victory over death. If we trust in you, if we accept the gift of salvation from you and you alone we can be saved we can experience your love and we can love you with all that we are and in every way possible and then we can love others the way that you have loved us and as much as we love ourselves lord i pray that that if there's somebody here today who needs to know you that they would accept that gift today that they wouldn't wait another moment for the rest of us who know you, I pray that we would, would allow you to speak to our hearts in this moment, in this time of commitment. What are some ways that we need to improve in showing our love to others? What are some tangible ways that we can show our love to others? Deepening our relationships, building new relationships, whatever it is. Father, I pray that you would speak to us and that we would respond in obedience. There may be other decisions. Father, you may be leading some to join this church. You may be leading some to be baptized, that have already accepted salvation, whatever it is, Father, I pray that we would respond to you as we always should in total obedience. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?